Monologue Podcast, where juicy original monologues are read by actors to bring you the intimate theatre experience from the comfort of your earphones. I'm your host, Daniela Down, and this podcast is brought to you by Orange Theatre Company. Grab a coffee to go, stand back from the yellow line, and breathe. No eye contact is needed for this journey. All aboard, Mind the Gap is about to begin. Hello, hello, hello. We're back. Have you missed us? We've certainly missed you. We're coming back with a bang. We've got a double bill lined up for you. This episode of Three Monologues plus a bonus episode with two more, chock full with awesome original work on the theme Mind the Gap. Generation gap, wage gap, or the physical distance that separates us. These monologues delve into the darkness between the crack of the platform and bring to light what lurks there. In this episode, we journey around the world and into many different walks of life. From a self-proclaimed street prophet philosophizing on the bus to a nostalgic journey about lost love and broken promises on the London underground to a commuter on the Hong Kong metro who questions whether the whole of humanity has substituted technology for common sense. It's a wild ride for you in this episode. Let the storytelling journey begin. While we're on intros, Syra Ehrens, one of the directors at Orange Theatre Company, is back to co-host with me. Hooray! Hooray! Yay! Welcome! How excited are you for season two of the Monologue Podcast? Very, very excited. So when we were coming up with all the episode themes, you and I, we sat brainstorming, and you were particularly excited about this one, Mind the Gap. Yes. Why? Well, um, when you miss something, it's something you think about a lot well no what i'm trying to say is how many wines have you had Sarah? (laughs) (laughs) i haven't even finished my first but the thing is whenever we can't do anything or we miss something that's when we think about it constantly so obviously most people actually wrote monologues about traveling because we're not doing that right now if we could travel anywhere when we can travel again obviously when the restrictions are lifted where would you go? And how would you get there? Ooh. I would really love to visit South Africa again. And how about you? Obviously, or not so obviously to listeners, because they don't know this, but I grew up in Hong Kong and my family are there and they haven't seen my daughter for a long time. She's one and a half. Oh. No, she's not. She's not. She's not one and a half. She's, she's 15 months. <laughs> yeah, still my first. Um, so she's one and a little bit. Anyway... Enough from us, time for a monologue. Our first monologue, Spam, follows a self-proclaimed street prophet's revelations on the bus. It is performed by Dauda Ladejobi, a London-based actor, poet and rapper, and written by Elston Taylor, a Manchester-based tech support and writer who's just finished his first novel. Once the gap is closed and we can travel again, he'll be off to visit his dad in Florida. The mantra that got him through this tough year is a thinking man does not act. Here is Spam. You ever miss the bus and think like, they could have stopped right there? Or they could have waited? That shit fucks with me on a daily, bro. (laughs) Nah, 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 bro, chill. Let me speak. Let me speak, man. Listen, yeah? This shit is all fucking connected, bro. You know? Like, shit, dude, think about it. Do you know anybody who, you know, likes getting on the bus? (laughs) Right. 
Nah, dude, seriously, it's all fucked up and it's all linked. Fucking government, bro. Playing with our shit. Like, check it, yeah? We're like fucking conditioning shit. Shackled and on display at these windows that only open the tiniest bit. We're conditioned, fam. And it's not just what they put in the water, bro. Nah, it's what they put in our heads. I'm like coming at you with levels, my guy. Cognition and all that shit. Yo, ain't nobody talking about this, man. Look, fuck that, yeah? Like, so I'm Mr. Boss. Trying to make my way in this fat-ass world, same as everybody else. And my guy fucks off. I was like this far away. I swear, bruv, fucking government fam. I've been telling you, my guy don't even know he's part of the system. Probably just thinking, oh, fuck that guy, I'm not waiting. He don't know he's in the system. Think about it like this, bro, yeah? We're all part of this fucking, this, this, this fast cow, right? And, and like, I don't know, pig or whatever. It, it's all the same thing. What's that word? Oh, shit. It's like some primary school shit, bro. Help me out, man. Meet, meet, meet you. Nah, bro, that's a pizza. Fuck it, fuck it. Look, I'm using meat as an example, yeah? Cool. So, we're all part of this fucking fuck-off animal, yeah? Pig, cow, whatever. And we're separated into cuts of meat, yeah? So, like, you ride your bike, so you're, like, the beast do bits car, you know? You're muscular and shit, but, you know, <laughs> cyclists can be knobheads, bro, so a little hard to digest than that. <laughs> nah, bro, listen, 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 listen. Like, The people in their cars, they're like cuts of steak. Yeah, yeah, they're soft and lazy. And, like, here I am... Sitting here on the bus, being all like giblets and shit with all my giblet bros and sisters in this fucking fuck off tin of spam. It don't matter though. Bike, car, bus, walk, fucking backflip. It don't fucking matter. We're all just meat. All this shit, dude, is just farm to table, bro. Straight to the plate of some fat rich come over Mr. Burns looking fucker. What's for dinner? Your soul, bro. Your fucking soul. <laughs> Some deep shit, dude. The factual actuals of life lessons nobody wants to learn. That's why nobody likes a boss. It's not the boss's fault. We know this shit deep down, yeah? But we think we can't escape, so we ignore it. <laughs> we're stuck in a green mile, bro. Dead men walking. But instead of a mile, we're on a fucking 50-year career track, a five-mile bus route, and a 30-minute ad-free session on Spotify. It's all fucking linked. <laughs> It's like my man from the film. You know, my guy, Mad Max, bruv. He's in that film. <laughs> no, not Lethal Weapon, dude. But, nah, come on, that is a sick film, though. Nah, the other Mad Max guy. Bruv's a sick actor, bruv. He, he puts on some weird voice, like, and fights with the other guy with a cape, bruv. <laughs> he fights fucking Batman, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the film? Dark Knight. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dark fucking night. So anyways, my guy's like, <clears throat> I've locked you in this hole. But not really cause of that massive ass hole above. But it is fucking hard to get out. So you have enough hope to break your own spirits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, though, yeah? Obviously, yeah, my guy does it sick in that film. He did it way better than that. But my point is, the big G wants us to break our own shit. Mining shit. The big ass hole above is money. The car, the mortgage, the woman, especially the woman, bro. The prison is not the bus or the job. 
It's our fucking mind, bro. But yeah. What if we choose to change that shit? And the boss was like this fucking place. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, people enjoyed being there and the drivers fucking waited for people running to get on. <sighs> mm. Nah, I'm not saying it right. Like, So yeah, check this out, yeah? What if it was okay to sit next to a stranger on an empty bus and not feel like an absolute nonce? <laughs> what if it was okay to talk to a stranger and get to know people on there? You know, bruv, the government don't want that car. It's like, it, it fucking humanises us, dude. Once we realise that we're people and everyone around us is people, we won't take as much shit. We won't eat from the trough. <laughs> bruv, it's better to keep us in a meat market, you know what I mean? Makes me think though, yeah? How many love stories ended before they fucking started because of this... This... <laughs> I could have met the love of my life if it wasn't so wrong to see people's people. Or the bus driver fucking waited for me. Not bad. <laughs> Look, imagine we had some welcoming energy. Like some vibes. What? No, not like playing some music. Keep your office bullshit, bruv. People on the bus should sing, dude. Like a fucking choir. Children running around. Bruv, it, it should be like a wedding with a fucking cypher circle upstairs where we find the next Wiley, Bugsy or Stormzy, bruv. Spitting freestyle straight from his teenage mind. <laughs> Tell you, man, if we beat this, <laughs> the route to a better world is a bus ride away. <laughs> anyway, that's why I'm late. What do you mean I'm not in this week? It's the 29th, right? Oh, fuck. Oh, shit. Guess there's always a trip on, innit? As always, we go backstage with the writers to find out more about their work and their creative process, which will hopefully inspire you lovely listeners to get creative too. Hey, Elston, what a pleasure to get to chat to you. And thank you so much for joining us on the Monologue podcast. I love how we just dip into this random guy's life. And we were just wondering, how did you come up with the idea? It sort of started with the prompt that I got um, through the monologue workshop that I did, Drop the Ball. And one of the prompts was, I missed the bus. And then kind of just go. And with this one, I just thought with the objects of the bus and what that sort of means in society, what would happen if this person had this almost existential analysis of his place in the world by not only being on the bus, but missing the bus. And yeah, that's kind of how I just exploded with <laughs> all the um, madness. And I, I love that it came from a random writing prompt at a course. I think they're so strong. It's such a powerful way to start creating. I personally, I love it when you get given a little hook or, or a string to lead you somewhere and then you normally end up somewhere very unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before the course, I sort of forgot how to be creative. And yeah, those prompts have just really helped me find my mojo again. So, Do you really forget how to ride or is it like riding a bike where you, once you start, I mean, the pressure of starting is usually, that's what, what, what keeps us from not starting because it's just scary and we build up our own walls but once you start it is it then do things come back to you yeah i think what happened with me was i did this big project i'd written a novel that i'd like planned for like ages and it was just i poured my heart and soul into it 
and I was just like, okay, I've done that. And now I have to be that good. So starting the monologues, I realized that I've never done it before. There's no pressure, just play, just go and do. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's freeing, right? Because um, you don't have to think of such well-rounded story. Like I, I, I've never written a novel and I can imagine it takes a hell of a lot of planning, as you said. Whereas a monologue, you can sort of just wing it, let loose. The one thing that I kind of lent on when I was writing it was that um, I really, I really pride myself on my characters, um, and that's that was the one thing I could fall back on. Like a monologue is, like character go. Actually, um, our next question is about characters, so our listeners don't see the script, but in it you describe the character as a self-proclaimed street prophet. Is it modeled on someone you've known in your life? Yeah, several people. Um, I'd say so how I make characters is I I build like a bit of a recipe with it so in this instance I sort of wrote this backwards so I wanted to put that he's obviously challenging the idea of the bus and the feeling that you get of getting on the bus and the line that I picked up on was people on the bus should sing Mm -hmm. then I wrote it backwards so I was like okay who would have this utopian view so I kind of like picked up from my friend Miles in that one he has these massive views, but then like just grabs everything at once. Mm. Um, and the street prophet type based on my two uncles on my mother's side. And those guys are really just like big thinkers. Yeah, it was kind of just all like put together. And um, speaking of recipes, let's talk about the meat metaphor. Because I, <laughs> I think it's genius. Um, and that's coming from me and I'm a, I'm a long time vegetarian. I think the short answer is I just thought it'd be funny. Um, just because that's, that's a good enough reason, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the meat metaphor is really good to kind of describe the social divide that we experience. The cuts of steak being premium, the fattier the better. So that's sort of like um, being in the car. If you have a car, that's the highest you're gonna get. And if you're driving in a Lamborghini and stuff like that, you can say that's a that's like prime rib or wagyu or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you obviously you have the people on the bus, the giblets, you know, the people that really just, you know, they make beef stock. They, they, um, that that's where the flavor is, but nobody appreciates it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's such a good way of describing how the world works. I think you should copyright it, uh, trademark it. I was was thinking to say (laughs) such an original take on, you know, the class Mm. system. Yeah. So I really hope that you keep writing also monologues. And just the fact that you've completed a novel is fucking awesome. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. the courage it takes to put pen to paper. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm not one, I would never do it. So I'm really happy that talented people like you send in the monologues. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> Our second monologue, Losing Grace, is performed by Jay Oliver Yip, a London-based actor, producer and director at Wolfpack Productions and written by Toby McShane, a well-traveled English teacher who's currently based in the UK. His lockdown revelation was realizing that creativity in everyone is a compulsion that can't be escaped. He's moving to Switzerland next year, so he can't wait to travel by train through the Alps when we can travel again. Here is Losing Grace. There's a spot under Waterloo Station, 
the cross section where the northern meets the Piccadilly line or where an old bum used to sit and yell about spy cams and pigeons. He's not there anymore. Maybe he died. Maybe the pigeons finally got him. I don't know. That spot is where I met Grace. In the middle of stale air and piss. Romantic? Maybe not, but we can't all get some Panglossian meat-cute in a bookshop or an airport departure lounge. The universe is an equilibrium for every one of those bullshit Annie Hall encounters. It requires someone else give in and accept love in the pissy underbelly of the London underground. Grace by name, right? And it's true. She brought this standard of beauty to things, which is cruel more than anything, because those same things never look quite the same once she's gone. And I've come to realise that Grace doesn't stick around for long. Used to ride the circle line for hours on end. I'd sketch a random soul and she'd write them a poem and if she wrote it quick enough she'd give it to her subject before they got off and nine times out of ten they'd think she was begging for money or a cigarette and immediately decline the gesture. But then they'd see her face. And I'd watch their face soften and then that slow break into a soft smile, bashful, like they'd been noticed, truly noticed, perhaps for the first time in their lives. Grace tried to get me to share my sketches, but I never did. She always used to buy a hard ticket for the tube. I used to sulk by the wall as she spent an extra few minutes in line with the doe-eyed day-trippers and the squabbling tourists. And she'd turn to me and shrug and say she wasn't about to slap a debit card on a gate with no idea of the charge. That was a fool's game, apparently. She used to sit down at the piano on the concourse at St Pancras and put a cap on the foot of the stool, whilst I bought the cheapest coffee possible from the Nero over the way and sat down at a table to watch her and pretend like I didn't know who she was. I would watch strangers watch her and whisper quietly to each other and nod like they had a clue. And although they didn't, it didn't matter because people just got grace. I got grace well I thought I did but you see when she invited me to this bullshit boho cafe on the south bank that didn't serve anything that hadn't just prior to serving been pulverised in a juicer to say that she was leaving me to go work on some llama farm in Andalusia with a tart called Almalfi and her pet Alsatian LaRue well she called it a breakup brunch. Huh. There was a budget Elton on that piano this morning, playing the intro to Tiny Dancer on the loop, and he was dipping and ducking his head like he were at the Royal Albert. And everyone just blasted past him like they couldn't and didn't give a bollock. People in this city are too self-absorbed to notice. If vanity is radiation, then London is fucking snowball. I stood at the entrance to the underground, counting the click-clacks of the gate, the chomping jaw of a Herculean beast, devouring each willing morsel, one oyster card at a time, and they throw themselves gladly down its throat. The most orderly gullet in the world. Please stand to the right as you're swallowed whole. 
I thought about buying a ticket and then I thought against it. What's the point, eh? Let the day drippers and the foreigners fight it out. I just slapped my travel card on the gate and climbed down into the belly of the beast myself to be met with warm, stale air. Leering faces of has-been soap stars in pantomime drag and every third poster telling me that new Ian Rankin is a must-read. No thanks. My sketchbook stays at home now, sunken in the sock drawer with a coffee stain on the cover from when it was a coaster. What would I draw anyway? The old woman half-dead in her seat? The emo kid with the tin metal music blaring out of a budget earphone? The businessman stuck in a scroll hole with the roasting jaw and a throat dripping worse than a pensioner's cock? Am I really going to draw these faces of the dead, entombed in their coffin that rattles through the dark like a ferry on the river Styx? The next station is Hades. Doors will open on the right-hand side. A light here for the primeval void. There's a spot under Waterloo Station, at the cross-section where the northern meets the Piccadilly line, and where an old bum used to sit and yell about spy cams and pigeons. He's not there anymore. Grace always joked that the pigeons finally got him. I used to laugh. I don't know. I just hope that maybe he found a way out. And, um, By the way, are you recording yourself? I've just, I've just put record on. Okay, should I record? Uh, yeah. Yeah? All right. I thought there was some good stuff coming out of our I'm chat. So. Um, <laughs> yeah, so in the first lockdown, this idea came yeah. as kind of platform for new writing in the form of monologues. Um, so kind of this really nice short form anthology. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's such an effective way to to still produce something with the limitations that we're all facing, isn't it? You know, a monologue, I think it's it's doable. And also for writers, I think that lower fear threshold means that I, th I like to think more people are willing to give monologue writing a go. Maybe yeah. people that have never written before. Um, but also I think mm. it's a lot of people enjoy it because there's some clear parameters. So, you know, it's only seven to eight hundred words. For us, it's always based around the theme, so it helps to focus probably as well. Whereas if you're gonna just start writing, it's scary it's as hell. <laughs> and it's great as well because it's really not restricted to any sort of preconceived ideas on monologue. It can mm. be as prosy or as sparse or as stream of consciousness as you like it. You know, there's there's not many sort of set rules with a monologue. I find. Yeah. Shall we start with the official part of? Oh yeah, yeah, the official interview. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you for joining us um, on Zoom. I was going to say in Amsterdam, but you're not. You're in Wiltshire and we're Virtually in Amsterdam. Virtually you are in Amsterdam. Virtually we are together by the powers of technology. For anyone that's been on the London Underground, um, I know when I was living in London, I spent a lot of time on the Underground. And maybe if you haven't, I think this piece really conjures up a strong image, a sense of familiarity, the lost love. I mean, even the bum and the pigeons and the piss smell. Like, it's, it's all very familiar. So how did you come up with this monologue? I'd always wanted to write something sort of based around the London Underground or have that as a setting. Um, and I thought, you know, let's take something that's one of the least, most least likely things to happen down there, and that's like finding love um, and explore that. And we were just wondering, did you... Um 
Yeah, have you ever experienced high or lows romantically on the, the train yourself? Um, certainly not to the extent that the uh, the character in this has. But do you know what I find? I don't know, maybe I'm the only one to do this, but sometimes, you know, you might be on the tube and, and I remember one day seeing somebody and, and, you know, that instant thing of like, oh, wow, that's the most beautiful person I've ever seen. And then you're on the tube together and then they get off at another stop and you'll never see them again. Talking about finding connections in, in odd places, I really like this idea of this couple kind of sketching. And I, I actually received a sketch once by somebody on a beer mat in a cafe here in Amsterdam. And it was a bit odd, but it was also kind of thrilling, the spontaneity of it. And because of lockdown and the pandemic and a lot of things have shifted, do you think these moments of spontaneity or connection will be lost forever that sounds really doom and gloom but. it's an interesting one isn't it I, I certainly feel that whilst you know we have these masks and things like that and which obviously are necessary at the moment but there is that physical barrier there but I think as a result of lockdown in general you know it's made us realize how much we crave human interaction and being around people so I think that it's opened our eyes a little bit to how much we value that and maybe in a sense, bring us closer together because we've gone through this shared experience like no society in general has ever gone through since probably, you know, World War II, perhaps, where this affected that many people um, at once. So that's got to maybe in some way bring people close together. I hope so. That's a really snogging nice... Snogging on the train again. Spontaneous <laughs> snogging on the train. That would be wonderful. I have one last question to you. As a writer, what, what, is, what do you enjoy the most about the writing process? when lovely people like you pick it up and uh, put it out there somewhere. Good <laughs> answer. That... When it's read by someone. <laughs> no, I, I, I really love just uh, exploring an idea. And for me, it's a little bit like scratching an itch. And maybe it hasn't gone anywhere, but that itch has been scratched and you can either go back to it, rework it or something like that, or, you know, it just goes in a drawer and put away and then you go on to the next thing. It might end up on the monologue podcast. It may so, very well. Good Be job. <laughs> being listened to people all over the world. We've got listeners from everywhere. Mm. I don't know how these people hear. Keep listening, please, Thank lovely you listeners. For listening. Thank you for listening. Our final monologue today is performed by Nick Atkinson, a Hong Kong-based actor, communication coach and director of the Proscenium Online Theatre, and written by James Down, an aircraft technical manager and engineering wizard based in Hong Kong for over 20 years, who also happens to be my dad. A revelation he had over lockdown was that drinking beer only tastes good with friends. And the first place he'll travel to is obviously Amsterdam to see me, but mostly to see his granddaughter. every Hong Kong mass transit railway passenger, but never established if we heard it. Another waste of time. Unnecessary noise pollution. With heads down focused on mobile devices, cocooned in near-space virtual games or the latest news or messages, it falls on deaf ears. 
not raising so much as an eyebrow or a twitch of the lower lip from any of the people on the platform with me. Do they realise there is a danger ahead as we traverse the giant gap between train and platform? All five inches of it. But this is a feature of MTR commuting. Announced at every station prior to the train arriving. It's announced inside the train as well, if you listen carefully. It's not that it's a distraction. Listening to a good podcast or observing the people around me, I barely notice the announcement. But today, it has sufficed as a nagging reminder of how stupid the owners of the MTR are. Or are they? Maybe it is us, navigating the multitude of hazards in everyday life with our minds focused elsewhere that are in need of protection from everything that might go wrong. Or maybe the MTR needs protection from us. The message seems trivial, an unimportant intrusion on the audio in my earpods. But why do I find myself thinking of this today? After all, it simply blends into the background noise of people talking, the shuffling humdrum of people getting on the train and jostling to find their spot. I look down the platform at the orderly queues of people waiting for their ride. I have a sense of awe at the sheer volume of people that use this transport system. Why do they announce this most benign warning though, I ponder? To be fair, most companies are following a similar path of sticking warning and caution notices to protect them from the incompetent and ignorant among us. We just don't notice them. Think about those wee warning labels that are everywhere, on everything we buy, and everywhere we go. I think we're so overloaded by the obvious that we discard it without a second thought. From the one on your cup of coffee, warning you that it is likely to be hot and not to pour it into your crotch, to the baby stroller that warns parents not to attempt to fold the buggy with the baby still in it. And my favourite has to be the caution not intended for highway use I saw on a wheelbarrow. And in a close runners-up position, Apple's warning to people that their iPod shuffle is not edible. Really? Yeah, they really are covering the lowest common denominator. Crazy world. Okay, here is the train. The doors silently swish open. Watch that gap. Right, I'm on. A quick scan for a seat. Seats are prized possessions on an MTR ride, considered a first-class benefit in the scheme of things. A metal, slippery, slidey bench seat, but a seat nonetheless. Once you sit, it is a bit awkward being beneath the gaze of the jealous onlookers. The more seasoned travellers will stare back from their seat, smug in the comfort that they were first to it. Alas, no available seat. Pretty standard, really. Now I won't get to be head down catching up on emails and surfing the net in relative comfort. I have, 
although I'm distressed to say, been offered a seat, one of those priority seats for parents with small children and yes, old people. The horror I felt when the little old lady got up to let me sit where she had been, gesturing me with a kind but sympathetic smile. She's older than me. Do I really look like I need that seat? No, 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 I couldn't. I politely declined and scrambled further down the carriage to escape the embarrassing situation. I'll have to settle for second class, where you can lean against the sidewall of the carriage. Not quite the luxury of the metal bench, but there are advantages. You can stand and watch over the rest of the carriage occupants, taking in the eclectic mix of my fellow commuters. I scan the scene. I'm confident also that I'm that guy that knows where the fire extinguisher and emergency stop button is. I've got you covered, fellow MTR jockeys. In second class, leaning against the side of the carriage frees up both hands again for the double-digit typing. You also have the distinct advantage of getting out of the train at your desired station without too much of a fight, especially if you claim a corner spot near the doors. From your seated position in that first-class non-stick seat, you need to pit your wits and play your best rugby moves against the immovable, unseeing, unfeeling front row with their heads down on mobile phones and backpack tackle bags. As you roll forward and initiate the vertical manoeuvre to stand, there is a counter-defensive blocking tactic which elicits a twisting spin to deflect the bag. And then it's a body-swerve sidestep and dash under the posts or exit. Satisfied with my second-class position, I eye the third-class passengers. You know, those without a seat or a wall to lean on. Those pitiful beings standing in the middle of the carriage forming the swaying zombie crowd. Third-class travel is a frequent occurrence, much to my disappointment. It results in a desperate battle to remain in a free space, often with less than an inch or two from those around you and more often than not getting buffered by those backpacks. Hanging on to the overhead handle with one hand if you're lucky. I'll be concentrating on not dropping my phone while clumsily stabbing at the keyboard with my thumb on the same hand that precariously balances the device. I'm amazed at my counterparts who unerringly stand. No steadying hand or middle carriage pole needed, completely unfazed. Tapping away furiously on their mobile phones with the dual thumb technique. How do they do that? Is there a training course for the rapid-fire thumb that I can attend? They seem so adept. The keyboard is a virtual extension of those opposable digits and the text flows like water through a valley and then throw in the use of Chinese characters. It's damn impressive. The age and skill gap is wider than the platform. Right, next stop is mine. Get ready for the exit manoeuvre. Check out who is also shuffling towards the exit. They are the ones to follow. I'm not too far from the exit, but a wrong move now on my part, and I can get shut out from the in game and risk being trapped in the closing door beep indication. I cannot have that. Those that only just make it off the train in time are losers. 
The train stops and the doors open. I shuffle towards the exit. As I go to lift my left foot, I catch it on the corner of a large shopping trolley and stumble into a comical dance as I try to remain composed and natural. My phone squirts out of my hand like a bar of soap in a shower. Time goes into slow motion. I watch in amazement as my phone, like a perfect space shuttle launch, rises like a rocket and then takes a rotating gravity turn and begins to return to Earth in a majestic display of wingless flight. I'm desperately trying to regain balance and recapture my airborne device, arms and fingers flailing in a lame attempt to prevent, in my now racing mind's eye, another broken screen. But the phone has grander plans than that. As I fall helplessly to the carriage floor, my eyes are fixed on the phone as it enters its final death spiral into the black hole, perfectly slotting between the train and the platform and disappears into the void below. (laughs) Who'd have thought that, eh? This is going to be, this is a first. Yeah, an extra guest. We've got Freya's debut. So Freya is going to be the extra host uh, today. We are hopeful she will utter some uh, sensible things, not just nonsense. James, thank you so much for being part of our podcast and joining us for this interview all the way from Hong Kong. I know, it's so exciting. Our our international podcast family is growing every episode. And this is just more than the podcast family, isn't it? Yeah, this is is my real family. Jim is my dad. I want to ask you a question, James. I've never been to Hong Kong, to its underground train line. Is it really like that getting around there? Yeah, it's the MTR. It's a a long snake. Uh, You can see all the way through the train. So it's quite incredible when you see the carriages ahead of you turning and moving up and down. You get a sense that you're in this serpent moving through the city. It's quite cool. It's probably fair to say that the uh, the Hong Kong MTR, Mass Transit Railway, is, yes. is, is definitely one of the best railway systems in, in any city that I've been to. And it can be uh, manic at the best, but it's still a very efficient system. And it's, it's definitely the lifeblood of Hong Kong. And um, your profession is not writer. So in your uh, daily life, you do something else. I was wondering, how was this writing process for you? Yeah, I guess if you ask Daniela, she will tell you that I have uh, I have an imagination which uh, runs <laughs> wild at times and I just have never really put it to paper. Right. Uh, I, I do enjoy sort of storytelling and things like that. I've started writing a book which has been going for about five or six years, which I, I'm still to finish and I, I hope I do that one day. It's trying to move away from being a, um, an engineer. I'm an aircraft engineer by trade, but I wanted to give it a go. Yeah, and it's interesting because obviously I know you pretty well and grew up listening to all your amazing bedtime stories, but it's interesting to hear you write in such an eloquent way. It's really nice to see you flexing your creativity muscle um, in a new way. It's really inspiring. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, always good to try new things. And I tried a little bit of painting, which uh, didn't go so well. But uh, I also do enjoy uh, listening to podcasts immensely. And uh, it's something that I'm getting a lot out of. Yeah, you and me both. We have lots of conversations about new things we've we've listened to. Well, I mean, last question was going to be that this year the gap feels larger than ever. And as someone who has worked in the airline industry for decades... <laughs> 
Do you think that the pandemic has changed how we travel for good? Well, if I'm honest, I'm hoping not. But of course, right now, there is huge change and we're all mm. adapting to that. And I think it will come back. It may take longer than we would like, but I think there will be a change, hopefully uh, for the better. How does it feel hearing your words brought to life? So I've never actually heard anyone narrate my inner feelings before. So I guess it was a surreal experience. And to hear somebody speaking my words uh, is unusual. Hearing somebody bring your words to life, I'm sure it's that same kind of buzz that we get just before we get on stage. Maybe I'll turn to amateur dramatics as a, a final closing curtain on my career here. You mean turn back to amateur dramatics? You're the reason <laughs> yeah, I, I got into so. it in the first place. It was um, terrible. It's time for your lesser-known quote from a famous play. Today's quote is from American genius playwright Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie, written in 1944. This is the play that catapulted him into fame and has an incredible quote on being mindful about a gap and the distances between us. Time is the longest distance between two places. There you have it, your lesser-known quote from a famous play. Try slipping it into conversation with someone today or etching it into a tree trunk in the park on your next walk. Oh, it's good to be back. And the cool thing is, we've got two more original monologues for you in the bonus episode coming up after this. You lucky things, you. As you've probably sensed, we're coming to the end of the show, so it's time for a plug. Syra, anything you want to plug? So many of the talented toppers, which is actually a Dutch word, but I think you can guess what it means, on our show have their own creative shit going on that we want to promote. Dauda Ledejobi, the actor from the first monologue, has released Muted Mask, spoken word poetry for Spoken Not Stirred a London poetry collective. You can find it on Instagram and it's linked in the show notes. J. Oliver Yip, the actor of our second monologue, has just released Night Watchmen, a mini comedy series about a reluctant hackney-based superhero available on Amazon Prime Video. Nick Atkinson, the actor of the third monologue, has an online theatre company slash fiction podcast that is creating autumn original audio plays. They're like movies for your ears. Listen by searching The Proscenium wherever you get your podcasts. All the writing in this show is original and written for this podcast. We're always on the lookout for actors and writers to make this show happen. We are currently accepting monologues for our next episode, which is themed Tits and Ass. If this inspires you, send your 5-8 to eight minute monologue, that's 700 to 1100 words, to us at info at orangetheatrecompany.com before May the 10th. And stay up to date with all things monologue podcast related on our Facebook or Instagram page at The Monologue Podcast. That's a wrap, folks. Syra, thanks for being my co-hostess with the mostess. And a standing ovation, please, for Elston, Dowder, Toby, Jay, Jim and Nick, without whom this show isn't possible. And an especially big thank you to James Cook. He's the musical genius behind our original theme tune and music. And if you want to know more about his work, head to jamescookcomposition.com. As always, find links to anything mentioned today in the show notes. Dag, doei, ciao, adieu, joy gien, auf wiedersehen, jai jen, sayonara and toodaloo. Join us next month.